Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. In today's episode of the podcast, we will discuss the management of seizures in intensive care unit. Our guest is Dr. Brandon Foreman, an internist and neurologist with fellowship training in epilepsy and neurocritical care. Dr. Foreman is an associate professor of neurology at the University of Cincinnati Medical College. He is the associate director for neurocritical care research. He's an excellent clinician, researcher, and educator who focuses on clinical neurophysiology and neurocritical care. Brandon, welcome to Critical Matters. Thank you so much, Sergio. I appreciate you having me on. So I would like to start with a general question of why you think that clinicians working in maybe non-neurocritical care ICUs should care about this topic of managing seizures? That's a great question. I think it falls off the radar sometimes because we deal with so many other things and so many other problems. But I think two things come to play. One is this is actually something, and we'll talk about this, that's extraordinarily common. And I think we miss it if we don't think about it. Uh, and, and the second reason is that you know this kind of thing is something that often is a black box for us. It's something that we might be uncomfortable with, unfamiliar with, uh, try to work with our neurology partners on this and, and feel like, oh, I'm not sure what you're, what you're doing, why you're doing this, and, and what this means. And so I think kind of uncovering that, open the black box a little bit actually helps us to feel more comfortable with that initial management and trying to get things under control when we start seeing seizures in those patients. Perfect. And you mentioned that it's more common than some people might think it is. Could you give us an overview of the epidemiology of seizures in the ICU? There's been a, a whole bunch of studies at this point that really point out or highlight the fact that this is something more common than we think of. And part of the reason for that is somewhere on the order of 80 to 90 percent of the seizures that we end up dealing with in the ICU are non-convulsive, meaning you don't really see anything clinically. Um, it may be a patient who's got waxing and waning confusion or some periods of time where they don't seem to be as res responsive as they usually are. And that's all we got. And we have to kind of think about non-convulsive seizures to diagnose them. But in those studies where, uh, you know, conducted at centers where there's a lot of continuous EG and a lot of people who uh, are, are quick to apply that, the the number of people with seizures you know, with neurological illness is somewhere on the order of about 20%. Uh, but more importantly, in the studies from mixed ICUs, medical ICUs, surgical ICUs, the number of people who are having seizures with altered mental status that's otherwise unexplained is remarkably uh, similar or consistent, it's about one in 10 of your patients who are comatose or encephalopathic without another explanation. And I think that another important aspect of why this is, should be of great interest to a lot of our listeners who may, may not be in a neuro ICU or neurocritical care practice is that as we have a growth and specialization of these units, some of these commonly seen in neurological issues and non-neuro a pathology as a primary cause of, of admission might be overlooked and might be mismanaged. Right. Yeah, I think I think we often, you know, get in a situation where, you know, if we overlook this, they can these seizures can continue. They can go on, they can develop into something 
you know, that's refractory, refractory status epilepticus, which we'll hopefully talk about a little bit later, you know, and, and ultimately the longer seizures go on, the more they end up impacting the brain, causing secondary brain injuries. And those have a lot of impact on patients' long-term recovery. Perfect. In general terms, how would you think of the main causes or categories of seizures in ICU patients? As opposed to what we know about seizures and status as they present in the ED, where more than half of those patients have a pre-existing diagnosis of epilepsy and maybe forgot a medication, maybe have a urinary tract infection, when it comes to the same disease process, seizures and status epilepticus in our ICU patients, the causes tend to be uh, acute and symptomatic, so meaning they're stemming from something that's happening there and then, whether it's systemic inflammation in sepsis patients, for instance, who have an incidence of seizures about one in 10 patients, uh, or it's a harbinger or a canary in the coal mine for something that's developing in the brain, uh, things like press, for instance, that might develop in your post-transplant patients, right? These are warning signs that something is happening to the brain. And so usually these causes are telling us something has changed, something's going on, and there's something we need to figure out and hopefully mitigate or treat. Perfect. Let's talk about diagnosis, Brandon. I, I feel that a lot of times in the in the ICU, especially outside of the confines of a neuro ICU, um, when somebody has what's thought to be a seizure or convulsions, uh, people become very reactive and people kind of jump to do something. And I think often we overlook understanding what is happening first. So could you tell us a little bit about the value of history and observation and how, how you as a neurologist and neurointensivist would focus if somebody called you to the bedside for possible seizures? Yeah, this is, you know, this is a difficult thing because the manifestations of seizures are often really protean. So it, it becomes sort of a pretest probability game. Uh, you know, I, I think knowing what the patient is there for, their history, but more importantly, how their their exam or how their mental status has sort of been and progressed during their hospital stays is, is incredibly important. Uh, someone who comes in who's comatose from something that hasn't fully been reversed and remains comatose, you know, there, there's a reason for that, and the, your pretest probability may be lower. Whereas in someone who uh, maybe had a reasonable mental status and that has declined in the absence of something else going on, uh, say your CAT scan's normal, uh, uh, you know, and there's there's no other metabolic arrangements, right? That kind of patient is somebody who you might have a much higher clinical suspicion. Uh, and there's a lot of things that are associated with the development of seizures, too, that might raise suspicion. So those patients who their mental status isn't quite right, you're, you're concerned something is, has changed and they're, say, on cefepime or their sodium has fallen to 125 or, you know, they've got uh, underlying other organ dysfunction like renal dysfunction, liver dysfunction. These are all patients at high risk. So a lot of it boils down to are things happening that might be associated with that lower seizure threshold or are things developing that I'm not quite sure why in terms of that patient's neurological status, their mental status. And what I mean when I say that is their level of arousal and their ability to pay attention to you during an exam. Uh, and I think those two things end up being really critically important when you're observing the patient. So, you know, walking into a room and the patient is comatose if that's new or that hasn't improved the way you would expect it to, those are people with a potentially high pretest probability. Those are the ones in the observational studies that have that high incidence of seizures. But when you sit and observe someone, you're talking with, you're examining them, and you're 
responses from that patient or your interaction with that patient change during the course of that exam where they're not responding as well to you and then suddenly they're able to again or you get the history from your bedside nurse your your staff you know those again are patients who you, you have to have a you know sort of lower threshold to do a diagnostic test and just see is there something there that we can treat uh, because imminent you know seizures are imminently treatable and, and as a treatable cause for encephalopathy is a treatable cause for coma potentially that's a really powerful thing that gives us the you know the the, the ability to make an intervention and a difference uh, in in that patient excellent and you did mention some diagnostic testing could you just uh, give us a little bit of an overview of how you would approach a patient who has new onset seizures in terms of laboratory and imaging and then we can maybe dive a little bit deeper into the EEG and its role in the ICU the first thing to, I think, think about when you've got someone who potentially is is having seizures or if they're clinically having a seizure in front of you, certainly, is why. There's always, you know, the, again, most seizures in the ICU are going to be acute, provoked, or symptomatic seizures. So the question becomes, okay, why is this patient seizing in front of me? Uh, oftentimes, it's important to get laboratory studies and first and foremost, get that finger stick blood glucose. That's uh, a common abnormality in a lot of our patients, especially those on insulin. Maybe they're, they've got an AKI and now they're just not uh, uh, processing their insulin as well, such that they now have hypoglycemia, right? So get the finger stick blood glucose very quickly and then move on to getting you know, your routine labs. And by that, I mean things like your metabolic panel, right? Sodium is a common cause of lowered seizure threshold when it's super low. Uh, they may have other abnormalities. Calcium, for instance, is an abnormality. Uh, or they've got new onset organ failure. So look for those changes in, in things that might lower your seizure threshold. I tend to try to look for other causes that might be uh, uh, impacting that patient's body as well. So things like infection, inflammation. So easy stuff to do is get a UA, right? Uh, and then you have to think about uh, the brain. So is there something new that has happened in that person's brain that maybe we didn't expect? You know, a lot of our patients are on anticoagulation. Uh, a lot of our patients have histories of, of stroke or other neurological disorders. So there's a lot of risk there for many of these patients, in other words. So oftentimes, you know, we'll send labs, of course, uh, up front, and then we'll often send them down for a diagnostic image. And a CT of the brain will tell you a lot and give you some reassurance that there's not, you know, an acute hemorrhage or something, but gives you that starting block to say, okay, if I don't see anything, we definitely need to move on to an electrophysiologic test looking for those seizures in particular. What about the role of EEG in the initial diagnosis? I think we'll dive into continuous EEG later in our discussion, but just in terms of initial workup and how would you um, frame that within the context of an ICU? This has been uh, sort of an evolving thing. Uh, the the, you know, the gold standard for the diagnosis of seizures in the ICU is continuous EG. And part of that comes from the observational literature that suggests that a lot of the seizures that we might consider will hook someone up to EG. And it takes a while for that patient to show you that they're having seizures. They may be sporadic, they may be episodic, and they may not happen for 18 hours. But the background that we'll talk about a little bit later, but the background does give you a hint that, wow, this brain is very irritable, very prone to seizing. So, you know, what was observed, I think, from the beginning of all of this as the continuous EG literature came out is that you really need a certain amount of time of reporting those brain waves to really pick up on, oh, yeah, this patient is having seizures. 
uh, in that time frame tended to be recommended to be 24 hours of continuous EG for a patient who's got an exam. It's just maybe abnormal in terms of their mental status or arousal and attention. But in patients who are comatose, those seizures can be very sporadic, and uh, most people will recommend 48 to 72 hours just to obtain that sensitivity to say, yes, this patient is not having seizures uh, uh, with uh, 88 to 90% sensitivity. Now, that's begun to shift a little bit, and there's been some good literature that suggests that if you have a slow but you know, generally normal or you know non non concerning eg in terms of epileptiform discharges and some of the other patterns we talk about you may not need eg that long it may be just several hours to feel comfortable that your probability rather of going on to develop seizures is is low enough that they probably are not and then more recently there's been i think a, a shift even further to say well it may be enough to to do point of care eg or even in some situations, particularly when we're resource limited, that routine EEG, when done perhaps you know several times, but certainly done as a way to detect non-convulsive seizures, may actually be enough as well. And there was a randomized control trial uh, uh, that was that was done actually comparing continuous EEG to routine EEG, suggesting they may actually have a reasonable sensitivity when you do a routine EEG, as long as you're doing it on the right patient at the right time and following that up with a repeated study if you need to. Um, the bedside point of care EG has been a really nice novel technology that we've started using. And, and really what that boils down to is when you see a patient, you have a concern, you can put this uh, device on and there's several companies that make them. You can put a device on yourself. It's very easy to do and it records within five or 10 minutes and gives you an, an output that suggests whether seizures are occurring or not. And sometimes that's nice because you're seeing the symptoms. And if you can capture that EEG right away while you're in there examining the patient, uh, again, you have a much better idea that, okay, what I'm seeing in front of me is seizure or not, as opposed to, to waiting for, for a full head montage and a read from your neurologist. So the, the diagnostics have really shifted, and I think they've democratized to a point where anybody in any ICU can really diagnose these fairly quickly and fairly sensitively, uh, depending on, on the resources you have available. And it also seems that <clears throat> what has, has, has moved in a, in a different direction as we understand more about this uh, ictointerictal continuum and non-convulsive status people talk about is that historically people think of seizures as convulsions, right? Very dramatic convulsions. And in the ICU, for many, many reasons, there is an important number of patients who might not present like that in understanding when to do the testing and when to think about them, like you mentioned, when people are comatose and not responding in a way that we anticipate it, these might be some of the hints that also lead us in, in that direction in the ICU. Right. I think having that that you know, I think having that lower threshold to say maybe these are seizures, just that maybe, just that thought of these could be. I think that uh, being in your mind is a really important step to being able to diagnose these. You have to think about them if you want to diagnose them. Uh, and so it's important to, to keep that in your mind, especially in those patients who they're just not acting the way you want them to act. They're not waking up when you want them to wake up or as you expect them to wake up, or they're way deeper than you expect them to be based on what you know about that disease process or other patients that you've taken care of. So keeping it in mind, the front of your mind, I think is, is a really important step to diagnosing uh, these seizures. And in terms of differential diagnosis, I know there's a lot of people talk about non-epileptic events. Uh, in the ICU, psychogenic uh, 
seizures are probably less likely just because of the, the patient population. I'm sure that's a big part of what you evaluate uh, outside of the ICU as a neurologist. But in the ICU, what would be among the differential diagnosis that you'd be thinking of? You know, the problem or the difficulty with nonconvulsive seizures is that many of them are related to underlying toxic metabolic encephalopathies. And I, I say that word knowing it's sort of a vague word we neurologists like to use, but I don't think anyone else likes to hear. But, but you know, what I'm, what I'm referring to there ultimately is, is the stuff that often impacts mental status. So I mentioned things like hyponatremia might precipitate seizures, but in the same token, they also precipitate an encephalopathy or, or an alteration in someone's level of arousal or attention. And so that overlap gives you a pretty broad differential to these folks. Uh, and, I, and I think that's where kind of starting the process by saying, I think this is what we're seeing. I think this could be seizures and initiating that very first diagnostic workup with a pretty broad differential in mind, getting labs, getting a CT, moving to an EG when you can, uh, kind of covers that spectrum to give you the idea of, well, here are the things that could be impacting their mental status. Now here's our definitive test to show whether they are uh, doing that uh, because in part seizures are present or whether they're doing that on their own as just a background encephalopathy. Perfect. Let's talk about treatment, uh, Brandon. And uh, my first question regarding treatment is, do all seizures in the ICU require antiepileptic drug therapy? In general, probably. Um, I, you know, I think with seizures being sort of this, this symptom, ultimately, it's kind of like fever in a way for many patients, right? These are, these are coming out because the brain is saying, I am injured. But the problem with seizures is that they also tend to exacerbate injury or create injury independently of what was causing them to begin with. And there's been a lot of, of really good literature that, that, you know, looking at seizures in the brain in conjunction with other physiology, they are really impacting those neurons by outstripping their supply and demand matching. They're creating so much metabolic demand in those regions that are seizing. Those neurons actually can begin to die back. And so even if we say, well, this is a symptom, this is an, an epiphenomenon even of this patient's underlying sepsis and systemic inflammation, you still have to get control of the seizures because in and of themselves, they may be causing additional harm. So in general, when we see seizures, we tend to try to treat them as best we can with the minimum amount of treatment that we can get away with that's effective. It's the effectiveness, though, that we really want to focus on. Can we get them under control? Can we stop them? And once we've done that, then we can move forward with trying to mitigate their underlying cause. Perfect. And I guess another way of asking the same question would be that <clears throat> if you have a very transitory and um, identified cause, it doesn't necessarily mean that that patient will be uh, condemned to antiepileptic therapy for, for years to come, right? So I think acutely, because of the factors you mentioned and the impact it has on neurons and potential morbidity, you want to take control and treat them, but then probably with neurology kind of figure out, okay, this is what we think happened. This is what the long-term plan would be outside of the ICU. Right. And, and I think that's a really, really important point. There have been a couple of institutions that have put in place these uh, post-acute symptomatic seizure clinics that are designed to sort of see these patients after they've left the ICU in the hospital 
because while the incidence of epilepsy, and that's a diagnosis that requires unprovoked seizures, so after you've gotten out of the ICU, the acute brain injury or the you know acute systemic illness is over, you know the, the incidence of epilepsy may be high, but still 40% or so of these patients are kept on anticonvulsants, sometimes many of them, probably far longer than they actually should be. When you have something that's an acute symptomatic seizure, that means it's a symptom of what's happening acutely, right? And so when you take away that nidus that was creating the proclivity to have seizures, you know, in, in the majority of people, actually, you don't end up developing unprovoked seizures later down the line. So they're really there to treat that acute seizure problem and not necessarily to treat epilepsy, which is, is not a diagnosis they're going to get if they're in the middle of an acute uh, illness that might be creating the seizures in and of itself. Perfect. Let's talk a little bit about uh, you get called to the bedside or somebody comes into the ED with what appears to be convulsions and make a diagnosis of seizure. What's the initial treatment in those cases? Depends on the type. Uh, and th this can be a bit challenging because it's nuanced, but I think from a from a general intensive care sort of perspective, if you've got someone who's having motor manifestations, so in other words, convulsions, if you see someone with GTCs, <laughs> right, classic GTCs, so someone is having motor movements all over, we actually have good class one evidence that the first line of defense is a benzodiazepine at an adequate dose. And what I mean by that is, uh, for most adults, more than more, uh, more than 40 kilos in size, that's four milligrams of Ativan or 10 milligrams of midazolam. Uh, and you give that as quick as you can. That's class one evidence. Where it gets nuanced is what I mentioned earlier in that most ICU patients are having focal seizures. They're not happening all over the brain necessarily. And more importantly, they're non-convulsive. So it's a little bit different. We don't know how long they've been having these seizures. We're not sure if they're really spreading all over or staying in one spot. And so in many of our patients, we extrapolate this idea of benzodiazepines, and that's not inappropriate. I think it's still a good and, and efficacious first line of therapy, especially in our patients who already have a protected airway. There's absolutely no reason to start with a good dose of a benzodiazepine. Uh, as an abortive treatment for the seizures that you're seeing. Uh, the, the other piece of it, though, is that patient population where their airway is not secure, they're altered or they're encephalopathic in some way, and benzodiazepines may cause more harm than good. Uh, there's an old study that demonstrated that particularly in elderly people treated with benzodiazepines on a floor that it may increase mortality. And so those are patients where you step back and you say, okay, this is not a generalized tonic-clonic seizure, where we have good class one evidence for how to treat this. This is a non-convulsive, often focal seizure. And if the treatment is worse than the disease, in other words, if we give a benzodiazepine, that patient comes to you for an airway watch, right, or needs an airway, uh, we might need to change tack a little bit. And so that's where other medications that are fast acting and known to be efficacious might be helpful. Uh, and that's that's often a situation where it gets a little bit uh, tricky, but some of the things that you can do include things like fast-acting intravenous anti-seizure drugs. Often we use Keppra, Rivaracetam is another one uh, that is pretty quick-acting and non-sedating. Depakote actually has some pretty good evidence too. None of those actually 
uh, will cause respiratory compromise. And then another trend that's come as uh, it's come in the in the age of ketamine, which treats everything, is you know a low dose ketamine, something you might use for pain, like 0.3 to 0.5 mix per keg as a bolus can be a good abortant without respiratory depression too. So there's quite a bit you can use in the ICU patient without an airway who you want to treat or abort those seizures. In general, if you remember benzos at an adequate dose though, in general you'll be in good shape for an initial treatment of seizures in those patients. One other, I think, point to make though is benzos wear off and recurrence of seizures and status epilepticus is really common. So it's always prudent to chase it with a standard anticonvulsant. So if you're an anti-seizure drug, if you're treating with a benzo as your first line, and, and again, that's that's an appropriate thing to keep in your mind to keep it simple, right? You always want to chase it with an anti-seizure drug to prevent recurrence when that benzo kind of filters out of their system. And so oftentimes we'll use that IV anti-seizure drug, of which there are many, but um, uh, any, any one you pick is probably fine to start. And then you can kind of take it from there to see if that's going to be efficacious uh, over the next coming hours. And you did mention, obviously, when you talked about benzos, the um, respiratory depression, and a lot of times these patients might have an airway already. But also, I, I think a, a common um, a common problem is that we underdose these, and that patients really with seizures probably need a, a good dose. Is that something you want you can comment on? The the efficacy that's been shown for the benzodiazepines is definitely predicated on a bigger dose than I think we tend to use. Uh, you know, for a lot of the indications in the general ICU, we'll use, you know, smaller doses of Ativan, 0.5, 1, maybe 2. And for a lot of patients with seizures and status epilepticus, most people will use these lower doses of Ativan, like 2 milligrams. But what's been shown in the randomized control trial literature, and, and again, this was generalized tonic-clonic status, right? But what was shown is that the doses that are, are required are more like four milligrams of lorazepam or 10 milligrams of midazolam. So it seems like a lot, but when it comes to seizures, you really have to suppress those brain networks that are activated by the seizure and precipitating or, or, or propagating those seizures. That, that takes quite a bit. Under treatment is something that you know the, the observational literature has been pretty clear about is associated with a lack of seizure control amongst other patient-centered outcomes in the hospital, like length of stay and mortality, even in some situations. Perfect. And there, another situation that I, that I wanted to ask you about um, is patients with known epilepsy that are admitted to the ICU, perhaps with other diagnoses. And now they're intubated, they're MPO. Any specific considerations that, that we should have in managing these patients? The thing that I come across probably the most is the, the the patient who's in the ED and they have epilepsy and they're on meds and they have to stay in the ED because we just don't have beds and hopefully you guys don't have to deal with that but I'm sure everyone does and so they might get intubated they're sick they're waiting on that bed and they just don't get their meds and that's a problem. Those people develop their their epilepsy, their seizures, and often they can become refractory and 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 you know develop into status epilepticus. And so the biggest thing is uh, to keep these epilepsy patients on the drugs they're on if you can. That may require placing interval access and giving them the drugs. Uh, you know, even if they're even if they're someone who you might not otherwise feed. Uh, such as if they're on high doses of levofed, they still need the drugs. That's really, really important. Uh, and if they 
do develop seizures, often optimizing the drugs they're already on makes an easy decision. If they're already on, uh, say, phenytoin, it's worked for them for years, even though I'm not a big fan of phenytoin in the acute seizure setting, that's a nice tool to use. You can optimize those levels or optimize that dose. When it comes to giving them, you know, I think new drugs, then it becomes a little bit more challenging. But a lot of our IV anti-seizure drugs uh, have been made in such a way that they actually don't interact all that much. Our newer anti-seizure drugs that are intravenous, uh, things like Keppra, Lacosamide, Rivaracetam, these kind of medications tend to be pretty easy to add on top of the seizure drugs that patients might be on, even the complicated ones in, in, in refractory epilepsy patients. But getting their drugs to them on time and avoiding that break, that delay that often will lower their seizure threshold, that is just the most crucial thing you can do. Perfect. Let's talk a little bit about status. We did mention it um, earlier. And uh, could you just define for us, Brandon, what is status epilepticus? Uh, it in some ways depends on the type, again, in terms of what you would what you would call status epilepticus in in the generalized tonic clonic seizure uh, world uh, it, the status epilepticus is really defined as uh, based on on two different time points one is when is that seizure going to stop and at what point does it seem like it's not going to stop and so status epilepticus and someone who's got generalized motor seizures if they last longer than five minutes the likelihood that they are going to stop or remit long enough for that patient to begin having recovery is very, very low. And so we define status epilepticus in that, in that case as a seizure lasting longer than five minutes. In patients with focal seizures, uh, that time extends out a little bit to 10 minutes or so of continuous or recurrent seizure activity. And then when you have a patient with non-convulsive seizures, again, this is what most of what we deal with in the ICU, uh, what's been defined more recently, and this is in, in some ways based on some literature from, from the pediatric uh, intensive care world, uh, a, a seizure burden that is higher than 20% of your 30 or 60 minute recording would be considered status epilepticus. And again, it's just electrographic, right? So we don't see anything clinically, but more than 20% of your EG recording with seizures, whether recurrent or continuous, would be considered status epilepticus. I think the bottom line sort of conceptually is this. If you're having a seizure and it is very unlikely to stop on its own or recurrent seizures and they're very unlikely to stop or abate on their own, that's status epilepticus. And is there a distinction between status and refractory status epilepticus? Uh, it's sort of a, a, a derivative de a difference in the sense that we define it based on the response to medications. So refractory status epilepticus is those patients who have failed not only a first line, again, which tends to be a benzodiazepine, but you've given them that IV anti-seizure drug or you've given them that, that bolus of, of whatever medication you're giving to abort seizures, and that has failed too. So if you failed a benzodiazepine in a second line, now you're in what's called refractory status epilepticus. Perfect. And could you give us a little bit more of an uh, outline of how you would deal therapeutically with status epilepticus. You talked about first line, second line, there's anesthetics, but just in general, what would be like a overall approach that, that would be based on current evidence? Uh, current evidence. Uh, 
where you know there, there's evidence that's being developed certainly and we've got a lot of observational data but there's still a lot of debate and i think the first thing to do is make a distinction and that is between a patient who's got generalized seizures so their entire brain is seizing and patients who have focal seizures that aren't stopping um, and the reason i'm making this distinction is there's been an increasing amount of literature that suggests that anesthetics have an independent association with poorer outcome in patients who do develop status epilepticus. And so there's a risk benefit there that needs to sort of take into account the underlying type of seizure. Most of our seizures in the ICU are not going to be this. But when we think of status epilepticus in the literature or when we think of it conceptually, we often do think of it generalized or a whole brain seizure that's causing someone to have giant motor movements, tonic and clonic motor movements. So those patients who have that, that's a medical emergency. That's equivalent to a stroke, an MI. That is something that people are going to jump on. And that tends to be jumped on in the, in the uh, ED space, right? That's something that's first responders are dealing with generally. And that's going to be a benzodiazepine, a second line anti-seizure drug, an intravenous anti-seizure drug whether it's Keppra or Depakote or Phenytoin, which have been tested and are equivalent in aborting that status epilepticus. And then very quickly, within about an hour, certainly about 30 minutes to an hour, you should be starting an anesthetic uh, continuous infusion in order to get that status under control. So it's a very rapid sequence algorithm. Uh, many people don't have seizure protocols or status epilepticus protocols, but it's something that probably should be protocolized if you don't already have one. There's some out there published or on websites from institutions such as Yale uh, University where I've uh, got some colleagues and they've, they've got terrific status epilepticus algorithms that flow very quickly. Again, that's generalized whole brain status. Benzo, second line IV anesthetic or uh, anti-seizure drug anesthetic. In our patients in the ICU, it's that other population. It's generally focal seizures. They may spread, but they tend to be non-convulsive as well. And when it comes to that treatment, I think you've got a little bit more time to avoid anesthetics if you can. And what I mean by that is typically we'll give an abortant, meaning usually a benzodiazepine, think benzodiazepine first. We'll give an IV anti-seizure drug. And then we've got a minute to stop and say, is this working? Take that 30 to 60 minute period, they're focal seizures. We've just given an IV anti-seizure drug, evaluate it first. This isn't generalized tonic-clonic status. You've got the luxury of a little bit more time to see if what you gave is working. And things like IV Keppra that we use all the time, or IV levetiracetam, tend to take 30 or 45 minutes to get into the system to saturate the receptors. So you have the time to give it that time and see if it's working. And if not, we'll often give a third IV anti-seizure drug, maybe with another bolus of benzodiazepines, before moving on to anesthetics. And that's the patient with a protected airway where you can ramp the stuff up pretty quickly and you want to. But in the patient who's got a preserved mental status or airway, their vital functions are maintained we'll often try to stepwise in, increase or optimize our anti-seizure drugs, adding one at a time and evaluating its effect as long as their vital functions are preserved. And that's the one we really want to avoid having to go down the road of intubation and anesthesia if we at all possibly can. 
So there's a bit of nuance there, but separated in your minds, generalized motor tonic-clonic status, get that under control within an hour, anesthetics approved, they're going to be intubated, get it done. And focal and non-convulsive seizures and status, try to get things under control with an anti-seizure drug, avoiding anesthetic until you really don't have a choice. You've failed one, maybe two anti-seizure drugs, you're still seizing, your vital functions are affected, then that's a person you might consider anesthetic. Uh, so while that nuance is there, I think for the intensivist, the main thing to consider is really working closely with whoever's reading your EG to know whether that drug is working or not. Um, if you can avoid anesthetics, do so, but know that it's in your back pocket if you really need to knock that out because those seizures are having impact on your patient. And obviously, once we, we get to the realm of anesthetics, I mean, that's going to be more prolonged treatment. And then the weaning would hopefully occur very slowly. And the idea being that you're giving the antiepileptics enough time to, to get to critical levels to control the seizures. Exactly. Exactly. Could you tell us in simple words uh, for a non-neurologist, what do we mean by birth suppression and why is that so important? Birth suppression is a pattern that you see on an EEG in which the the brain waves, the squiggly lines, I can say squiggly lines, that's okay, like you say it, it's all right, right? Uh, the squiggly lines on the EEG happen for a period of maybe a couple of seconds, and then there's a complete flat line on the EEG for a number of seconds thereafter, followed by more squiggly lines. So it's a burst of electrical activity within the brain, followed by a flattening attenuation of suppression of the brain activity. And then you get another burst, burst suppression. Uh, in general, you know, burst suppression is not a good thing. Uh, burst suppression, for instance, in the OR is associated with long-term morbidity mortality uh, in, in the literature from, from uh, the anesthesia world. But the reason why it's used in this disease process is it's really a way of reducing the metabolic rate and the continuous organized activity of the brain, which sometimes is necessary to disrupt the seizures themselves. Those seizures are predicated on just a, a vicious cycle that continues them or propagates and uh, uh, keeps them going. And when you induce something like birth suppression, that tends to be enough to disrupt that seizure focus and finally allow the brain to sort of stop seizing. So really it's kind of like a, 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 a surrogate for, for a certain level of, of medication-induced coma that we hope helps stop the seizures. But the squiggly right. lines could be seizures or not, right? There are times when the bursts are highly epileptiform, it's true, and you see kind of a snapshot of what those seizures look like, even within the burst. So as soon as the brain has any activity at all, it tends to look like the seizure that you were seeing. And that's a tough situation because often that's predictive that coming off the anesthetics, which we want to do as quickly as we can, uh, may not work. In other words, we might wean those anesthetics and the seizures just come right back. And often we want to see those bursts look very boring, uh, non-sharp, non-epileptiform. Uh, so it's something to look for. But when seizures or a seizure-like pattern that you're seeing lasts less than 10 seconds, while, you know, it's sort of, it's a brief seizure functionally, it, we don't consider those to be seizures or they have another term that's being used to describe them, brief potentially ictal rhythmic discharges or birds. 
and they're really predictive uh, more than anything else. Uh, but that means we have at least broken up those long continuous periods of seizure activity. And by doing that, hopefully the brain's supply and demand now are a bit better matched. That demand is not so much so that the neurons are becoming damaged as a result, or at least that's the idea. Still a lot of mystery surrounding birth suppression, how it works and whether it's the right target, quite frankly. Perfect. And, and we did talk a little bit, obviously we, we already mentioned <clears throat> non-convulsive status, which is basically seizure activity in patients in the ICU specifically who are non-convulsive, are not having convulsions, but they're obviously encephalopathic and something that we, we, we want to treat as well. Is there a percent, a known percent of patients who start as convulsive that with treatment actually can deceive us without an EEG and we think, oh, they're better, but they're actually in non-convulsive status? Is that a real thing? Some really good kind of formative literature in that space was from from uh, a, a group from Rochester, Minnesota, who described seizures occurring in half of patients who stopped having motor seizures and status epilepticus that was still occurring in about one out of every 10 patients who stopped having motor seizures. So it's extraordinarily common. These patients are, you know, for all intents and purposes, I assume that they are still seizing if you've gotten control of their motor seizures. Okay, and I think that that really leads us to the next topic I wanted to ask you about, which is a discussion around the ictal-interictal continuum and these patients that we're, we're trying to figure out are they seizing or not. And like you mentioned, uh, the role in the ICU of continuous EEG has expanded dramatically, I would say, in the last decade. But what are when should we have continuous EEG in the, in the, in the ICU? Well, it's there's a variety of indications that have been endorsed by the uh, by several societies, the American Clinical Neurophysiology Society and, and European societies, uh, and and they're all fairly consistent. Although you know they acknowledge the level of evidence or, or or you know the strength of the recommendation oftentimes is fairly weak. But I think there's a fair amount of consensus that patients who have a mental status that is abnormal and not explained by their exam or injury, or excuse me, by their, their radiographic uh, uh, presentation or their injury is, is a population where you, you really want to get a continuous EG. One of the recommendations specifically is to get EG in patients who have had motor seizures and have not recovered a normal degree of mental status kind of pursuant to what we were just talking about. And, and and then there are other instances where, you know, patients who have odd movements, things that you you don't really quite know what you're seeing, but they're twitching, they're moving, they're jerking, they're moving their eyes in a funny way. Believe it or not, that those are things that also, you know, are potentially indications. So if you need to see what this spell, this movement is, you really need EEG to do that. And in many cases, these patients have these things, you know, randomly throughout a day. And so continuous EG is helpful because, you know, you'll capture that on the video. So those seem like pretty broad indications, and they are. And I think that leaves a lot of the decision making up to us as the intensivists to know, you know, whether this mental status this patient is displaying is expected or not. And that's that's a tall order. And I tend to fall in the camp of, well, if I'm not sure, you know, if I can get an EEG or at least do a point of care bedside EEG, I'll feel a lot more comfortable. 
And one of the, I guess, unintended consequences of expanding the use of EEG in the ICU is that we start finding in a lot of our patients, especially post-cardiac arrest or anoxic brain injury patients, a lot of patterns that don't look normal, right? Like these um, pleds, bipleds, G-pleds. And I know there's been some literature looking at these. Um, could you talk a little bit about, I guess, those are abnormal findings that are not necessarily seizures, and what should we do about them? Oh, that's a big question. The Pandora uh, box has so, been opened. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we have another uh, hour and a half on this podcast. Uh, I'm kidding. So uh, so for, for you intensivists in the audience, right, if you start using continuous EG, you're going to see a whole bunch of acronyms pop up on your EG report. Uh, and there's going to be a lot of abnormalities on the EGs that you're looking at. And that's just a fact. These are incredibly common patterns, and they're very um, they're very difficult to tease apart sometimes what they mean. And the, the acronyms that you tend to see are based on a standardized terminology for reading and reporting continuous EG that's been elaborated over the last 10 years or so. And basically what they're trying to describe are these things that are occurring on the EG where the brain is creating a rhythm or a pattern that is not what the brain is supposed to be doing. The brain doesn't do rhythms and patterns. The brain asynchronizes. Uh, and, and, and that tends to be then when you see something that's rhythmic or periodic, uh, that tends to be an abnormal thing. So uh, these acronyms that are used are things that refer to where the abnormality is happening and what it looks like. So the terms tend to be, or most common terms tend to be lateralized periodic discharges or LPDs, generalized periodic discharges, and then there's rhythmic discharges or rhythmic delta activity as well. You'll see those quite a bit because those are the most common things we see. Here's the problem. When you have a seizure, if you were to look at it on the EG and describe it, you would say it looks a whole lot like supraventricular tachycardia. It's a very rapid, sharp, and slow wave discharge. When you look at something like lateralized periodic discharges, you'll go to the EG, and it looks a whole lot like normal sinus rhythm or maybe white complex QRSs. Um, but it's slower, right? It's not SVT. And they're not evolving. In other words, they're not speeding up or slowing down, which is the characteristic that we look for in the electrophysiology world of uh, seizures. So we're left with a question. These are slow, and they're not evolving. They're not fast enough to be seizures. They're not evolving like seizures do. And so we're left with a question of what they mean. And the literature has been varied in terms of how it approaches this. But I think the one thing we know is that when we see these things, that is brain that is likely to or, or has a proclivity to seize. So it's a, it is in and of itself a warning sign. This is a patient who has a higher likelihood that they're going to have a seizure. If you were to do a routine EG, because it's hard to get a continuous EG at your center, for instance, and you see one of these patterns, uh, it looks like there's QRS complexes sitting there in your squiggly lines. That's someone who you probably want to convert over to a continuous EG based on what we were talking about before. It takes some time to have the relevant sensitivity to detect non-convulsive seizures. Those patients have a much higher incidence. Lateralized periodic discharges, for instance, if you have these 
epileptiform looking discharges coming from one side of the brain, right? If you were to see a QRS complex in just like one of those channels uh, or those, those you know, banks of channels, that's a patient who you know, has a 40% likelihood, or I should say 40% of those patients go on to develop seizures. So it's much higher than what we've been talking about, you know, 10%, maybe 20%, depending on the population. Uh, and those are patients to watch a little bit longer. Now, the other confusion, or not confusion, I guess, complexity within the literature is that there are situations in which those patterns are actually seizures in and of themselves. They're not just a pattern that says this brain is irritable and ready to seize. They're actually that brain seizing but it's just such an injured brain that those seizures are not propagating as quickly or as uh, as robustly as you would expect from a normal brain or a brain that's able to generate a normal seizure. Um, and that gets really tricky. So a lot of times, you know, from my standpoint anyway, what I want to do is, is test this out. I want to know, is this pattern actually seizure? In other words, is it impacting this patient's brain to the point where what I'm seeing, a patient with altered mental status or coma, is being impacted by this. And the only way to test that is by getting rid of that pattern, just like you would treat a seizure, to see if the patient gets better. Uh, and that's something that's been advocated for, we've actually studied, and you get a, a actually a pretty robust number of patients, about 40% of patients who respond to getting rid of those abnormal discharges and they actually get better. And that tells you that these aren't just a risk factor for seizures, but they actually may be impacting your patient. So for the intensivist, if you see it, heads up. That's someone who probably needs to be watched a little more closely because they may develop seizures. And it's an opportunity for you to actually go in and try to treat these things like you would seizures. Give them a benzodiazepine, clean up the EG. And then on the other side, you can see whether that patient's actually doing better, more awake, right? They shouldn't be. If you give them two milligrams, five milligrams of midazolam, that patient should be asleep on you, right? But if all of a sudden they're able to follow a command, they're able to open their eyes, their language starts to get better, maybe if they have an aphasia, whatever the case may be, whatever their symptom was, if it's improving with the benzodiazepine because you've cleared out this abnormal pattern, that may indicate they need to be treated more like seizures rather than a warning for the potential seizures that could develop. But it's very complicated. Uh, and a lot of people hate the term. A lot of people hate seeing it and not knowing what to do with it. And so if you feel that way, you're not alone. But, <laughs> but I think thinking of it as this could be one of these two problems and being proactive about trying to test that hypothesis, could these be seizures in, in and of themselves, gives you the power to actually kind of figure that out, tease it apart, and know where to go from there. Yeah. And I think that the the bottom line is really that there's not one size fits all and that these require more investigation and sometimes some therapeutic trials to, to really see, I mean, is there an impact or not? If you treat them, like you said, and nothing happens, well, maybe that's not the, the route you want to go. But um, obviously something that we have learned over the years as we find more and more abnormalities in our patients so thanks for, for helping us give some clarity on what seems to be still a very nuanced and complex uh, topic. The other question I had regarding um, this this topic is the new new technology that's emerging um, for continuous EEG. You mentioned some of them, Cerebell, a point of care. A any comments on where those are headed and the role in non-neuro um, uh, ICUs? I, I think these... 
things that are, are coming out that are really designed to be put in our hands as intensivists and our, our fellows residents' hands, even you know, in the, the hands of the folks working in the ED. I, I think these are a big sea change in some sense in terms of how we are approaching this problem uh, in, a, in a really positive way. Um, and, and the reason I say that is because this, you know, from a neurology standpoint, you, you go down, you evaluate a patient, and then you say, here's the differential diagnosis. They be, could be having X, Y, Z, and seizures is one of the possibilities. Let's get an EG. And if it's your shop, you know how that works. Uh, it may be 9 o'clock the next morning when the tech arrives. It might be five hours later when your techs can get there. Even in very robust epilepsy centers with continuous EG, it still takes two or three hours to hook somebody up. Uh, and that's fast because continuous EG takes a lot of work to glue on the electrodes properly and get things working properly. But within that two to three hour window, a lot of stuff happens. And I think that's where these technologies actually bridge a gap. They, they fit in the space between your exam and suspicion and differential and the diagnostic tests that you want to get to prove that hypothesis. And the the importance of that is, is a couple of things. So one is it gives you the power to go down there, put this thing on and get an answer. And some of the technologies that are out there not only include, you know, a very user-friendly headband or head cap that can be placed by you, by your nurses, but, uh, but some of them also include things like artificial intelligence algorithms that give you a readout. This is seizures. This is not likely seizures. And that's hugely important. A lot of us don't read EG. Um, and so, so it becomes really important because you can diagnose things as you're seeing the patient. So I, I ask the residents and fellows if they have someone who you get called about, rule out status, or we have someone in the ICU who we want to know, like right now, are they in status? Grab the cerebral on your way to seeing the patient. That's your stethoscope. That's your reflex hammer. That's your neurological exam extended. And you can do that at the bedside while you're doing that exam. By the time you get done, you got an answer. You've been able to mark that off your differential or maybe put it higher on your differential, depending on what you're seeing. So it's a really powerful thing. The other side of that coin, though, is not just getting treatment urgently and in the right patient, rather than treating a patient with drugs that shouldn't be treated with those drugs, or not treating a patient who then has seizures for the next two hours until you prove the point. But the patients who you don't see seizures on now can get triaged to an appropriate ICU, right? These are patients maybe that need to go to a medical ICU for sepsis rather than a neurological ICU for presumed status epilepticus. And you can start getting rid of stuff that could be harmful. The patient who's been intubated and now they're on anesthetics and they've been ramped up because everyone's worried they're having seizures, you can take those off within the 15, 20 minutes it takes to examine that patient and, and get a bedside EG rather than leaving them on for the two, three hours it might take you in a best case scenario to get your continuous EG. So that gap being filled leads to a tremendous amount of, of clinical ramifications within that very, very short period of time, both in the ED and with our ICU consults, as well as in our ICUs proper. Excellent. And I think that clearly we're seeing these um, appear in more and more ICUs. So learning how to use them. It sounds like they, they might be more sensitive than specific in terms of ruling out, like if it's normal, normal, right, or there's an abnormality, might trigger, I mean, 
more aggressive uh, evaluation, but it can help you kind of navigate the initial um, treatment of these patients in a, in a meaningful way, like you said. Yeah, absolutely. The last question I have regarding seizures is, when should we consider prophylaxis for seizures? The, uh, the official guidelines right now are that we would, you know, the recommendation is for seizure prophylaxis in patients with uh, moderate to severe traumatic brain injury for a period of seven days to treat just the acute symptomatic seizures that happen within that period of time. And they might be reasonable in patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage, particularly poor-grade subarachnoid hemorrhage. Those are the official recommendations. What I'll tell you is most people uh, use a prophylactic anti-seizure drugs for patients with acute brain injuries uh, in general, whether that's intracerebral hemorrhage, traumatic brain injury, subarachnoid hemorrhage, and post-operative patients who've undergone resection, for instance, of a brain tumor for that same period of time, extrapolating those recommendations for seven days of anti-seizure drugs to prevent the acute symptomatic seizures. Uh, evidence is limited on that. Anti-seizure drugs aren't benign by any means, and they do have side effects. So, you know, it, it oftentimes is something that happens in conjunction with your neurosurgery colleagues who are often seeing these patients or your neurocritical care neurology colleagues who might be collaborating with you in their care. Um, but oftentimes it's kind of site-specific or provider-specific. But those are the two populations where really the evidence is pretty clear or at least is, is you know, robust enough that the recommendations officially are to, to prophylax those people. Perfect. Well, Brandon, is there anything that we didn't cover that you want to make sure our listeners are aware of? I think we covered a lot of ground. If anything, you know, I think questions will probably come to mind, situations you've had that uh, have some nuance we didn't really hit on. And so I think those are things to, uh, to, to comment on, to, to put out to the community and, and think through. There's a lot of nuance here to this stuff, but at the same time, I think keeping things simple, right? Knowing these are frequent, knowing you can diagnose them, knowing that you can treat them is uh, uh, the most important thing, to keep it in the front of your mind as you're taking care of the folks that you take care of. For sure. Well, we like to close uh, every episode of the podcast with a couple questions that tap into the wisdom of our guest unrelated to the clinical topic we discussed. Would that be okay? Sure. So the first question relates to books. Are there any books that have influenced you significantly or a book uh, or books that you have gifted uh, often to other people? You know, I think, um, I think that I probably watch Netflix too much and don't read enough. But one of the, the books I think that's been the most influential and that I one of the few that I've read multiple times at this point is, is Herman Hesse's Siddhartha um, because, you know, it's such a simply written book and so beautiful and it has so much into it that you, you know, in it that you, you read something new every time. Um, and so and that's the book that I've probably gifted the most. You know, a lot of what we do when we do it right, I've heard people refer to it as intensive care. And I think that, you know, it kind of has, a, I think, an ethos, that book, right, that you can apply to your to your practice, to your life, in fact, to uh, to keep things simple, to be in the moment and to appreciate what we've got. Absolutely. And I think, like you mentioned, it's a, <clears throat> a short, short read, but very powerful. And one of those books that's worth rereading, right, that you come back after the years and find new things. So definitely we'll link that to the, to the show notes. Interesting. You met, you mentioned Netflix. I was reading earlier about <clears throat> culture 
in organizations and came upon the Netflix PowerPoint deck of their culture, which was went viral several years ago. And I think I read that 17 million people have looked at it. It's a PowerPoint deck that's supposed to be read, not, not, not presented. But it talks about how Netflix shaped their culture uh, to become what they became today. So we'll, we'll link that as well. Wow. I think it's something interesting. <laughs> that is interesting. They've become so successful. It would be really interesting. Cool. The second question is, what do you believe to be true in medicine or life that most people don't believe or don't act like they believe? Oh, that's a good question. Um, Because when I say it's the truth, you know, it doesn't mean it's actually a truth, I suppose. But um, something that I do think uh, that, you know, probably don't, a lot of people don't, and I I say and think a lot of things that a lot of people don't, um, is that, you know, in, in medicine anyway, I'm a diagnostician. I use a lot of tools. I have to. But the tools that I use are really only as useful as the person using them. And that's something that's kind of inflammatory, but I guess what I mean is, I guess what I mean is it's not enough to simply passively, passively observe the things that we often will do to diagnose people that we do to try to, 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 to get more information. We have to actually be active about what we're seeing. Uh, cognitive anchoring often gets us stuck in ruts where we kind of sit back and say, well, this is what it is. We think this is what it is, right? And so it's it's cliche to say, and I think this is where I, I get into something that a lot of people may not think of or do, but we should think different, obviously. That's a thing that we've, I think, had on, on Apple commercials for decades now. But doing so and using a scientific approach to test these hypotheses is really a privilege we have in the ICU setting. That's the truth in medicine I think people don't think of. We are more but we have this opportunity to test hypotheses in real time. Could it be this? Could it be that? If I do something diagnostic, let's intervene on it and see if it changes our diagnostics. Uh, that's something that I think is is really important. And I hope people are starting to do, I hope people do and try to avoid things like getting stuck on a specific, you know, uh, diagnosis, a specific situation that is maybe not adding up for that patient. I agree. And I think that the whole concept of intelligent failure is right. I mean, how can I get the most information with a minimal uh, negative impact on my patient and allows me to say this is more likely to be it or this is definitely not it, right? But sometimes, I mean, that type of, of, of trials, like we mentioned, with the abnormal EEGs and some of these patients it can give you a better answer. Totally. And that's life too. We always have to change tack, right? If something's not working, but uh, I don't find a lot of people do that. I don't know why. So cognitive (laughs) flexibility, it's the best thing ever. I like it. And the last question is what would you want every listener um, intensivist to know? Could be about the topic, something else could be a quote, specific fact, or just a thought. Well, as a as a neurointensivist, uh, you know, I think the thing that came, you know, comes to mind when you ask that is when it comes to brain stuff, <laughs> whether that's seizures and status epilepticus, of course, and all the other brain injuries we end up dealing with, the brain's a long game. And I think contrary to what a lot of us have learned or grown up with or, or maybe thought in our clinical practice, there is almost always something that can be done for patients with acute brain injuries, with seizures, with status epilepticus. 
is never really an excuse for nihilism in the majority of these patients. And it's very easy to get nihilistic about brain stuff. It's a long game, like I said. And, uh, and so when it comes to these patients who have brain disorders, hope is really the best tool you've got, optimism, uh, that you can do something and you can impact outcome in a positive way, even if it doesn't look that way on the ground at that moment at the bedside. Perfect. I think this is a good place to stop. Brandon, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your time with us. I hope to have you back on the podcast to discuss other neurocritical care topics and look forward to seeing you in person soon. I really appreciate you having me on, Sergio. Thanks so much for the opportunity. And uh, I hope to see you soon as well. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound's transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.